Good morning. Good morning. What's up? I said good morning. Thank you. It is. It is a good morning. It's a good week. Uh, as you, you probably know at this point, uh, Pastor Matt has, and well, Sarah and Pastor Matt. Sarah had a baby. <laughs> Sorry for asserting my maleness. Um, yeah, uh, they finally have not just a baby, but a daughter. If you did not know that, then he has entered into the ranks of Greg and I. Uh, so we are still waiting on our pers- uh, respective voice. <coughs> so thank you for uh, being here today. Thank you for sitting towards the front of the auditorium without me having to ask you. I noticed that earlier. It was nice. I uh, appreciate that. Um, with that, we're going to uh, get into our second week of Advent. We uh, have been in Acts for a good bit and been walking through that. And then uh, starting last week, we stepped away for our Advent series, which is what we typically do in December. Uh, yesterday and Friday, um, we had our Doctrine of God class. Um, it was our last one for the year, and I had a fantastic time. So thank you for being there. If you were a part of that, I pray that it was helpful um, and that it served you well. And you're going to hear a bit of a portion of it today. And I'm going to do my best to make my voice last until the end of the sermon, which may come quicker usual so we'll see uh with that if you have your bibles please go to the beginning of the new testament matthew chapter one matthew chapter one verse one i am not the authority on any of these names Let's just put that out there. Beginning. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers, at the time of the deportation, to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the list of begets. Uh, as famous as in the King James Version, Father, we usually skip these things. Uh, I think if we're honest as we read your scriptures, oftentimes when someone who does not know you asks one of us where to begin reading in the Bible, we hesitate to tell them Matthew because it starts with a genealogy and we're afraid they won't get to the end of chapter 1. And Father, these things mean lots of of important things to us. Father, you include them in your holy writing, your scriptures, for a reason. Father, we pray that today as we explore this, as we reflect in the meaning of Christmas, as we look at your uh, pedigree, Father, we would see what you have for us. Father, we would trust you because of it. Father, we would learn to love your word and you all the more as we see the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think many of you already know this news, um, but I am just really a big giant nerd. Um, it throws a lot of people off sometimes. Uh, I'm easily going to be able to avoid hipster land simply by the fact that I'm just a nerd. Um, it doesn't matter what glasses I have, what clothes I wear. At the end of the day, I am a nerd. I enjoy fantasy. Um, I was just checking out at Target yesterday. And as you probably know, they have all the cards over there by the checkout, and they have the Pokemon cards, the Magic cards. They have brought back one of my favorite characters from Magic the Gathering, and it makes me really nostalgic for like seven years ago before I was married and had a life. Um, I mean a wife. Uh, <coughs> it makes me really nostalgic for those things. I have a big stack of D&D books, Dungeons & Dragons, just waiting to play with someone who would enjoy uh, late nights, uh, destroying vampires and the like. Um, I, I love superheroes. I mean, part of that just comes with being, you know, the territory of being one. Um, you may or may not know that I'm Batman. My voice is here today. Uh, I enjoy these things, and, and for a reason. I think stories are such an integral component of our human experience. Uh, it's, it's one of the first things that we do with young children, uh, and even babies, right? Uh, we uh, we have our children, we have our our babies, and uh, yeah, I remember I'm using, I, I may be weird, and this this could just evidence the whole thing. But sitting there with my uh, new daughter Adeline, and I look at her, and she's my immediately my princess, and I'm going to protect her, and I'll be her white knight. And we begin by saying, once upon a time, there was a little baby named Adeline, right? We tell our kids stories, uh, maybe not when they first come out, but shortly after, right? They want you to read stories. We enjoy stories, but even though this seems like something that we would all share in common, it's not uncommon for critics to arise and to point out that stories are simply cowardly or that they are about avoiding reality and that they should be eschewed and put to the side of our culture because we need to face real problems and not uh, lose ourselves in fairy tales or in fables. What's interesting, though, is among the critics and among the fact that even though we know that they're not real, we are still incredibly compelled by these stories. I mean, they're beautiful pictures of the way that things 
could be, or, or probably even should be. These are worlds where the, the literal little guy can win. I mean, we're talking about hobbits. They can win against Sauron, the great uh, sorcerer, the one in the tower with the eye that can see everything. And you have the literal little guy who can win. You have these worlds where evil is defeated, where the weak are saved. I mean, is that sounding familiar to you? You see, there's, there's a deep place in the, human in the human heart that desires these things, to experience the supernatural, to escape death, to know love that we can never lose, to not age but live long enough to realize our dreams, to fly, to communicate with non-human beings, to, to triumph over evil, to be the shining white knight. And even though we know that these factually don't happen. Our hearts long for these things. And a well-told story momentarily satisfies these desires. This coming weekend, I'm going to tear up on Friday night, approximately 9 o'clock, when I see a long time ago and a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> it's going to happen. These stories stir us, right? Because deep inside our hearts, we, our hearts want to believe that these things are true, right? That death shouldn't be the end. And once I'm struck down with a lightsaber, I come back as a blue ghost, right? <laughs> and we should not lose our loved ones. That our loved ones should not be evil. And that evil should not triumph. But our minds say no. The critics say no. They insist that when you give yourself to fairy stories, you, you really believe in moral absolutes and the supernatural and the idea that we're going to live forever. That's not reality. And it's cowardly to give yourself to it. Then we come to the Christmas story, right? And at first glance, it looks like all the other stories, all the other legends. Right, here is a story about someone from a different world, right? From a different world, and he breaks into our world and he has miraculous powers he can calm storms he can heal people he can raise people from the dead and then his his enemies they turn on him and he's put to death and his friends abandon him and it seems like all hope is over but finally he rises from the dead and he saves everyone and we read that and we think, oh, that's a, another great fairy tale. And it's, I think, where most of us tend to relegate the Christmas story, and maybe even the entire story of <laughs> salvation. It's a thing that I think happened. I believe it's true. Uh, and, yeah. I believe it's true. I stake my life on that, I, I think, right? And that's the approach that is so common for our culture and for churches and for Christians to come to the story of God. As God is immaterial, like we talked about this past week. And so how can I truly know him? How can we truly know him? What does separate the Christmas story from all the other stories that we read? Why does the hobbit start in a different way than Matthew chapter 1. Because Matthew doesn't start, he doesn't begin his gospel with once upon a time. 
He doesn't start with once upon a time. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not good advice, a good story, or a moral fable. It is good news. It is breaking news. It cuts in your favorite show and says, just, this just happened. The news of a factual event, a moment and a man in history. Jesus is not one more lovely story pointing to all these underlying realities of these stories that we like. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. It's not once upon a time. It's this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. It is easy for us to forget when we hear the word gospel so often what it means. Right? Just believe the gospel. You need to gospel your heart. You need to make sure that you trust the gospel. You need to make sure that you are always seeing the gospel when you read all of Scripture. What does that mean? We forget what gospel means. It's good news. It's good news. So when your heart is down and we say you need to gospel your heart, we're saying give your heart good news. I'm getting excited. This is hurting my throat. (coughs) We mean good news. Take the good news into your life. What we mean when we talk about the gospel is that it is first good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is here. This is a factual thing. Matthew is grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. Jesus isn't a metaphor. He's real. This all happened. And one of the biggest <clears throat> one of the biggest apologetic questions that you can ask is and is thrown out often, I forgot who said it, is that if Jesus is real, then you have to do something with it. You have to do something with that. Uh, that's not a hard thing for us to process when we think about other historical figures. How many of you were alive when Hitler was here? Don't answer that. I'm going to save you. Not many, any of them, maybe. Not, no. But do we have any problem grounding him in history? Is there any doubt that he was a real man? That the acts that he did were truly evil? That he led a nation to deceit? we have any trouble identifying and understanding that even some of our fabled presidents were real men. Abraham Lincoln was a real man. George Washington was a real man. And we have no problem accepting that these are real people in history that did real things. And we respond in light of the fact that they did things. Those presidents are responsible for where we are as a nation. Hillary's responsible for where we are as a nation particularly as an industrial nation. When we think about these things, we have to respond and recognize that they are real events. And when we think about Jesus, for some reason it is so easy for us to relegate him as a figment of our imagination in the past. Even while accepting all the other figures that were alive at the exact same time. We relegate Jesus as some mythical being or as someone who's a, a good Uh, example for us, all while recognizing the fact that Nero was a real man. All while recognizing the fact that Caesars were real men. So for us, when we think about Jesus, 
he was real and he did something. And so how do we respond to that? This all happened. It is good news, not good advice. And why is that so important? Well, advice, let's compare advice and news. Advice is counsel about what you must do. It's counsel about what you must do, right? News is a report about what has already been done. Right? What you must do, but has been done. Advice urges you to make something happen, right? News urges you to recognize that something has already happened and to respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says that someone else has acted. The only time on the news TV show that you see future possibilities is Congress. There are always future possibilities, right? The news that we see is reports of things that have happened. This person did this. Sheriffs are investigating it. This person did this. That club is happy, right? It's things that already happened. And the birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel. It is good news, an announcement from the king on high. What's he saying? He's saying, you don't have to save yourself. That's the news. You don't have to save yourself. God has come to save you. Just look up. Look up in the sky. Super, no, it's not Superman. It's Jesus. It's the angels. This is the good news. You don't have to save yourself. God has come to you. Emmanuel has come. God with us. You see, the other religions of the world and, and many churches, when they talk about salvation, they understand it and they seem to proclaim it as advice. Salvation is something you have to wrestle and struggle for. You have to perform. <coughs> it only comes when you, or if you, pray, obey, and, and transform your, your consciousness, whatever that means. But the Christian gospel is different. The Christian gospel is foundationally different. The founders of the great religions say, in one way or another, I'm here to show you the way to spiritual reality. Do all this. That's advice. That's advice. <coughs> Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity, comes and says, instead, I am spiritual reality itself. You could never have come to me, and therefore... I had to come down to you. That's news. That's different. That changes your gift-giving holiday. That changes the way that you look at a tree. The news changes things. And so Christianity, Christmas, then is not simply about self-improvement or inspiration or guidance for life. It is first of all a message that you need to be saved. And you are saved not in the slightest by what you can do, but rather by what has already been done. It is news of an event in history. <coughs> I got too excited. It hurts. <coughs> You begin with Christ, right? Believing the report about what has happened in history. This story, this news, changes all other stories. So it's not just a story. It doesn't begin once upon a time in a little town called Bethlehem. 
right? And then we're subject to think that it's just like one of the others, but it's not. It's news. It's something that actually happened. It's not fiction. It's nonfiction. This is in a totally different section of the store. This is next to the history books. This is next to the biographies. A man named Jesus. This is his genealogy. And so when we think about the way that this story, this news, changes all other stories, how does it change all other stories? Well, first of all, Jesus Christ changes your story. Jesus Christ changes your story. <clears throat> you see, at Christmas, Jesus punched a hole between the ideal and the real, the eternal and the temporal, and came into our world. It's not this idealized hope of what could come. He came. That's real. That means, listen, if Matthew is right, that there is an evil sorcerer in this world. And we are all under enchantment. And there is a noble prince who has broken the enchantment. And there is a dragon that needs to be defeated. And there is a love from which we will never be parted. And even more so, we will indeed fly someday. We will defeat death. And in this world, now, red and tooth and claw, someday even the trees are going to dance and sing. It sounds like the end of Return of the King, right? With the ants partying. These are true, right? These stories that we love are not escapism at all. You see, the real story about Christ transforms and changes the stories that we love and enjoy. The supernatural realities to which they point do come true in Christ. I mean, what, what do you say to a child who's, who's sitting down and reading and enjoying a book and looks at the book and says this, I, I wish, Dad, that there was a noble prince who saved us from the dragon. I wish there was a superman I wish we could fly. I wish we could live forever. What do you say to that child? First thing that you say is you don't need Superman, son. You have Batman, all right? <laughs> Early ages, let's set this straight, all right? <clears throat> the second thing that you say is there is, son. There is, sweetie. I'm reminded of the movie Hook. I don't know if we're going too far back yet. The movie Hook, right? Robin Williams is Peter Pan, doesn't know it. He's laughing about all the stories as an adult. And what does Maggie Smith, as Wendy, say to him? Well, Peter, all the stories are true. All the stories are true. I mean, I wish, I wish that there was a noble prince who could save us from the dragon. I wish there was a Superman. I wish we could fly. I wish we could live forever. Peter... The stories are true. This true story begins, however, very different than most other stories. How do most stories start? Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess, and she was taken from her family by the evil witch and locked in the tower, right? A sleeping beauty. This story starts with the genealogy. It talks about his family, right? Now, if we think about the context here, when we think about families, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. When we think about families, the genealogy was really their resume, right? What they're proud of. Now, in our individualistic culture, our resume is all of our accomplishments, right? 
probably isn't even anything about your family on your resume. Can you think about how consuming, how integral of a part of who you are and your identity is your family, and it doesn't even get on your resume, right? It's individualistic, just you. We bring our skills, we bring our successes, we bring our accomplishments to our resumes, right? When we think about this culture, their resume was their pedigree, their family history, their tree. The genealogy says to the world, this is who I am. That's why honor is such a big, a big deal. Honor and shame in even this context and even still uh, in the uh, Far Eastern cultures, are, honor and shame is a big deal. And so what's interesting, though, is even with that being the case, uh, and, and sometimes in, in spite of that being the case, the fact that it does carry honor and shame, people would tinker with their resumes, right? They would, just like we do, we tinker with our resume. You don't put down on your resume the jobs that you got fired from, right? And mine, at like, I mean, oh, we'll get to that. When we think about tinkering with your resumes, you don't put the firing ones on there, right? But they would tinker with their genealogies. Can you imagine that? We know, actually, that Herod, that we're going to talk about some next week, Herod tinkered with his genealogy. He left off some of the uh, less, uh, well, I guess more of the more juicy uh, issues in his family genealogy to help protect his reign as king. Well, Matthew does the exact opposite when he, he doesn't, I mean, he tinkers with the resume, but he doesn't do it in, to make it look better. He does it the opposite way. And if you look at this genealogy, you see women. They never put women in the genealogy, let alone five. Gentiles, I mean, this is the Jews. This is Matthew, too, who is a Jew writing a gospel to the Jews. And the dominant theme that you see in the way that he presents Jesus is as king, right? And what does he do? Women and Gentiles, to be king of the Jews, to be king of the world, but to be king of the Jews. I mean, you look through here, and you've got some crazy examples. You have Judah, right? Judah and Tamar. Now, we talked on Wednesday trying to sort out our Tamars. Nothing good happens to Tamar in the Bible. So don't name your kids that, all right? Uh, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Why, why, is he, why is he break there? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and, and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez. Why doesn't he just say that? Well, he throws in this little morsel here, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, there's some shady business already going on between the way that Judah actually cared for Tamar, his, his daughter-in-law. But at the end of the day, Tamar tricks Judah and sleeps with him, her father-in-law, and has sons. Now, Jesus only comes through Perez. That's where it picks up, right? But he throws in Perez and Zerah. That's not the only... So you have, you have incest here. And then you look at Rahab. Rahab was what? Prostitute. Prostitute, right? Well, then, whew, we finally land somewhere good. I mean, you have Ruth in just a second, who was a Moabite, right? Not, a, not, not Jewish. And then you have David the king. All right, well, that's okay. We landed in a good spot. David the king. If I'm trying to amp up my resume, being the son of a king is a pretty good thing. If I'm trying to amp up my resume, if I'm trying to prove my kingship, as Matthew is doing from the line of David, this is a pretty important thing to, to throw on there. What does he say about David? David was the father of Solomon, comma, all right? Nope. Father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even name Bathsheba. Names all the other ladies. Doesn't name her. Says by the wife of Uriah. That's like the most spiteful way possible to say 
he was an adulterer, right? When we think about this relationship here, we skip through this. We skip this section when we read the scriptures. And then when we read it, we read it like earlier and we just rattle them off. But think about who these people are. Think about who they are. The life that's wrapped up in a name. The life that's wrapped up for us on a tombstone in the dash. When you think about this life, this is David lusting after the wife of Uriah. Uriah being one of the mighty men that defended David prior to his ascension as king. And then years later, desires his wife and has him killed. And so, there's more. In this list, you have clear moral outsiders, the ones that we just talked about. Adulterers, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. I mean, the two most prominent male ancestors in this list, Judah and David, were moral pharaohs. They were absolutely moral failures. Now, it's not just that. You also have, again, cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders. The law of Moses itself excluded these people from the presence of God. And yet, they are all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean? (coughs) Well, first of all, it shows that all are welcome. All are welcome. It shows us that people who are excluded by culture, who are excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter whether you've killed people. you repent and believe and trust in him the grace of jesus christ can cover your sin and unite you with him all are welcome second thing all are made holy all are made holy see all are welcome because they don't stay the way that they were the murderers david Saul, Paul were made holy. We talked in our class this weekend about the concentric circles of holiness. We think about the Old Testament law, particularly in its sacrificial law and in the way that you would worship the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. It worked like this. In the center, the concentric circles, in the center was holiness, right? Cleanness. To be ritually, to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. <laughs> A lot of lilies in there. Clean, right? Outside of that, you have unclean, right? Outside of that, generally profane, right? Those things that are absolutely profane. They've been cast aside. When we think about the way that that kind of relationship worked in there, if you, let's say, were clean in the center circle, 
if you were sanctified, if you were set apart for holy use, if you were clean, and you came into contact with something that was unclean, what happened? It's almost like a contagious virus, right? That the clean thing touches the unclean, and the unclean makes the clean thing unclean. In order to become clean again, you had to be sanctified, set apart again for holy use. You had to go through cleansing in order to be made clean again. When we think about Jesus coming on the scene, he came as a baby, he grew, he was clean, right? What happened when Jesus, the clean one, came into contact with those that were unclean? Did they make him unclean? No. His cleanness makes them clean. You have this reversal. You have this reversal. You have this reversal of holiness and that when the God of the universe comes and puts on flesh and becomes man, he comes as a clean one and he draws men to himself and he makes them clean again. You see, when you look at David, he had all the world's power and credentials. He was a man. He was not a woman. He was a Jew. He was not a Gentile. He was royalty. He was not poor. And yet Matthew shows us that he, too, can be in Jesus' family. How? Only by grace. He has all the things that you think would put him in the center circle, that would make him acceptable to God. But even he, the king, the royalty, the man, the Jew, must only enter by grace his evil deeds were worse than anything done by any of the women in this history and yet here he stands you see it's not the good people who are in and the bad people who are out everyone is in only by the grace of jesus christ by coming in contact with jesus the messiah christ he's the one that makes clean Everyone is only in by him. It is only what Jesus has done for you that can give you standing before God, that allows you to be part of this family, to be part of that circle. There is no one then, not even the greatest human being, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ if there is repentance and faith. There is repentance and faith. I mean, you look at this genealogy, right? The things that they typically would not include, right? One of my first jobs was at Friendly's, the ice cream place, right? They used to be in Vandalia. They destroyed the building. Now, this one has been closed for a while. Like, I didn't do this, all right? But imagine if I'm setting up my resume for my next job. I don't put on the resume that between Sundays that I made, I took the whipped cream thing and, you know, just shot some in there, right? You don't put that on there, right? You don't put that on there. You don't put in there the fact that, you know, when it was slow, I just took some spoons, dipped it in the peanut butter sauce, right? And enjoyed peanut butter. Get some marshmallow, right? And just, right? You don't put that in there. I didn't do that, all right? I put it all in a bowl, and then I ate it. Ah, <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't put that stuff in there. You wouldn't put in the, the specifics. It was, oh yeah, I, I worked at Friendly's and I did really, really good. But I also did this. Will you hire me, right? Ah, he was king. But he also did this. 
Is it still good? Right? That's not how we approach it. But that's the story of people. That's the story of people. You have these stories of all these people. Can you imagine the extended family reunions if all of these people were to sit down at the table and those that were, uh, that were redeemed, when they sit down at the table in heaven, you have all of these different people at one table. You have a prostitute next to a king. You have male and female. You have Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral. All sit down as equals. All sit down as equals at the table before Jesus. Equally sinful, equally lost, equally accepted, equally loved. God, God is not ashamed of us. Can you believe that? God is not ashamed of us. We are all in his family. But one of the one of the biggest struggles that sin gives us is shame. Shame is a right response to sin. But shame is often what traps us. And shame has been removed. The king of heaven comes down, puts on flesh, and has this family background, and he's not ashamed of his background. Aren't you Jesus? Wasn't your grandma a prostitute? I mean, come on, bro. Clean it up a little bit, right? Forever, right? Your dad was a king, all right, but he was crazy. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you kill a man over a ducky, right? <laughs> veggie tales for you. <clears throat> how do you do that? And is he concerned? No, he's not concerned. He's not ashamed of his family. Rusty, where do you get that from? Good question. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 10 through 15. It says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, it's not only not ashamed, saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I... And the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a good story. That is good news. He's not ashamed of us. He came and put on flesh and blood since we share flesh and blood together. And he, <laughs> through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death and names him the devil, the evil sorcerer, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death was subject to lifelong savior. He delivers us from our primary enemy. And how do most stories end? How do, you end a, how do you end a fairy tale? Once upon a time and happily ever after. Happily ever after. Let's talk about how this story ends. Jesus brings our final rest. Jesus brings our final rest. <clears throat> Told you today would be a little bit quicker. <laughs> 
Jesus brings our final rest. So we look at this and we learn from the genealogies that Jesus is the ultimate rest. And where do we get that from? Look back at chapter 1 and look at the end, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so we have from Abraham to David, David to exile, exile to Christ. 14 generations each, right? So what does that mean? There have been six sevens of generations, right? There have been six sevens. 14 divided by 2, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7. Jesus is the start, the beginning of the seventh seven. What does that mean? Well, Old Testament, right? Seven is a significant number, particularly in the way that it, it, it involved the calendar, right? Every seventh year, the farmers were to absolutely let all of the field lay fallow, right? They're not the plant. Let the ground have time to heal, to rest. Farmers do that even still now today, although they don't just do all of their fields. They cycle through their fields and let certain sections lay fallow for a year to heal, to be regenerated, to rest. Even in the calendar and even in their, their economic system, they had the year of Jubilee. At the end of the seventh seven, the last year of that, the 49th year, every 49 years, they would have what was called the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, debts were paid off, slaves were set free, everyone got a fresh start. And that was the way it was supposed to be. Just like it was supposed to be that they would let the fields lie follow every seventh year. Now, when we think about this implication here, whether the Jews actually, whether the Israelites actually followed the system is irrelevant at this point. The, the meaning still stands. God means for us to have rest. He rested on the seventh day. He instituted the Sabbath at Sinai. He instituted this rest for the land, for the earth, every seventh year, and the year of Jubilee for all of Israel. And so now we see here the importance that Matthew throws in. Again, Matthew's primarily writing to the Jews, right? Writing to the Jews. They, they catch this. They catch this. The seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It was a foretaste of the final rest that all will have when God renews the earth. That's a picture of the coming rest. You see, we so often feel like we have to control history. We have to control our legacy. We have to make sure that we can control everything so that everything goes right. It's not only exhausting, it's impossible. From planning parties to planning ministries to planning family outings and vacations to planning career paths, planning college, Planning, 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 planning. We have to be in control. We feel like we have to make everything right. What was the first thing that we learned yesterday in the covenantal triad? God is in control. He is mighty. He is in control. What's the second thing we learned? He has all authority. He has not just the might, but the right. What else did we learn? He's present, He's here, He's involved. He doesn't react 
He's active. He starts the ball rolling. Christmas tells us that despite appearances to the contrary, our good God is in control of history. Someday He's going to put everything right. Some of our inward rest comes when the Spirit reminds us of all this final salvation and ultimate rest. We can look to the end of this genealogy and see the rest that is to come and be encouraged that one day it will be. And that hope, that knowledge of what is true because God's Word does not lie, gives us rest now. It gives us rest now, but we don't have to be in control. God will take care of things. And so then we have a powerful hope in the future. It's not mere optimism. It's not mere optimism. It is a certainty that at the end of all things, all will be well. This is our happily ever after. The story will end and all things will be well. This gives us peace and strength when dealing with the trials and the tragedies of the present. When we think about this greatest story and when God punched a hole through eternity and entered into time, put on flesh, became the Son of Man. We know that the story ends well. We saw what He did. We stand in such a great place in history to be able to see all that He has done. This good news is not coming. We're not the shepherds in the field being like, ah, it's almost time. No, we're on the other side saying, ah, He did it. He did it. The good news is here. Eventually, the glory of God is going to cover the world the way that the waters cover the bottom of the sea. And then Jesus, the Jubilee King, the seventh seven, will give us the final perfect rest of love and joy. As you encounter this Christmas season, if you are feeling anything other than rest, and trust me, I've been in and out of that. Babies happening, classes, preaching, sickness, stuff, right? God is in control. He's the author of the story. How often do you see the author being the Savior? Our author is our Savior. And he will give us love and joy and rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. As we are in the midway point of the month, Father, we pray that you would give us rest, that you would give us peace. You are the God of peace. Um, We see next week some uh, challengers to your throne and to your peace. Next week, Father, we'll be reminded of this week that you're the author of the story. You wrote the whole thing. You know everything. You are in control. You have all authority. And you're with us. You're with us. So let us treasure Emmanuel. Let us treasure Emmanuel when we think back to your presence. We see that your spirit, your presence hovered over the the waters. And you brought peace to the earth and creation. You walked in the garden with man. That when they were in slavery, they weren't alone. You heard their cry. That you brought them out of Egypt. That you led them by day and by night in the wilderness. 
that your presence was in the tabernacle and then in the glorious temple. And then, Father, you saw fit to tabernacle among us when you put on flesh in the incarnation. And you walked with us just as we are, your brothers. And then, Father, you saw fit to make us your dwelling place. And so when we see this greatest story, we read the story of this author who now lives in us. Father, let us celebrate Emmanuel in that way. Let us celebrate your care for us in that way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.